Okay, so the, the uh, timeline here. So basically, we're going to be covering a lot of books, and I want to help you orient yourself to Israel's history. There's some major events that, if you can have those in mind, will really help you. So this timeline, basically along the top, has some major events in Israel's history. And then along the bottom, the bars, are basically the time period covered by those books. Keep in mind, there's a difference between the time period covered by a book and when the book was written. This is oriented toward when it was the time period being covered. So you can see there that Genesis covers a whole lot of time, Exodus a fair bit, and then Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy all come real quickly during the wilderness period. Um, And then Joshua is really a fairly brief amount of time right there at the beginning of the start of the conquest. And then you'll be able to see where Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, what they cover. All right, so let's go ahead and jump in here. But as I mentioned to you last week, there were three things we wanted to cover. And the last of those was basically a a little primer on how to read biblical narrative faithfully. Well, we didn't quite get to that. So I want to start there. Um, And it's particularly important. Well, it's important for all of the Bible because so much of the Bible is narrative. And even what isn't narrative is situated within a narrative context, the storyline of the Bible. But all of the former prophets are narrative. So it's going to be important that we know how to read narrative well. So I'm going to do two things here. Number one, give an explanation of how narrative works and guidance for interpreting it. So how it works, that's obviously going to drive how we should interpret it. And then secondly, just some things we can learn from the nature and presence of narrative in the Bible. All right, so first, how narrative works and guidance for interpreting narrative. I gave you a definition of narrative. It's pretty basic, the representation of an event or a series of events. So it's aimed at what we often might call like a story, which I'm going to use that term differently, though, in just a moment. First, though, really important to being able to interpret nature, uh, narrative well is understanding what I'm calling here the propositional nature of narrative. We naturally think of a story, of a narrative, as maybe entertaining And we even allow for narratives to influence the reader in some way. But we often don't think of narratives as prescribing. In other words, prescribing what we ought to think or prescribing what we ought to do. Right? We often think of them as being the opposite of that almost. But that is what narratives do. Even without grammatical imperatives, narratives call readers to think and or do something. And the narratives of the Bible are no exception. And the ability of narrative to make propositions depends on the distinction between two terms I'm going to use for these uh, here. And please note, these are like technical ways of using the terms. So this is not the way people naturally use these terms. It's kind of an artificial distinction between two terms that's used in narrative study to be able to distinguish two closely related things, but for the sake of kind of close scrutiny are helpfully separated out. Number one is story. And number two is narrative. So again, no, we're using this kind of in a technical way here for the sake of making a distinction. Story refers to the bare events. So every narrative has a story embedded within it, and it's able to be deduced from the reading of the narrative. But they aren't the same thing. In other words, you might read a whole story, that a whole narrative, read a whole narrative, and then be able to summarize for someone the major events that happen, right? The major events aren't the whole narrative, but that's the the story. Think of it like the skeleton to the narrative. There are events in there that form the core of that. And then narrative refers to the representation of the bare events. 
that is the story, in a meaningful way. For, uh, for example, ordering them and showing the cause and effect relationship between the events. So I'm going to illustrate this for you in a couple ways. We might mention some events from a person's life. He was married on such and such a date. He married so-and-so. He was born then and there. He went to college at such and such. But we wouldn't call this narrative. It's a collection of facts or events. We would never look at a sheet of such facts and call it biography, would we? Nor would we have much praise for the so-called biographer who wrote it. The biographer's task is to take these events and shape them into a narrative that has some kind of meaning. When, when we move from one event to another, show the cause and effect there. You could, as another example here, another way of illustrating this, call from the Gospel of John a chronology of the life of Jesus. But the result would not be the same thing as the Gospel of John, would it? Those are two different things. The former, those events in a sequence that you call from the Gospel of John would be the story. The latter, the Gospel of John as we actually have it, is the narrative. The former has no inherent meaning or prescription for the reader. It's just a sequence of, of events. The latter does, though. John states explicitly that he has a purpose in his narrative, and that purpose is to persuade the reader to believe that Jesus is the Christ. So the primary overarching proposition of John's gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, and his purpose is that his readers would believe that proposition. See that? You might think, well, why did he do that with narrative? That's what we'd be thinking unless we realize that narrative's capable of calling people to do something. You can have a purpose in writing a narrative. Another example. This will be the last one I give you. If you sit down with someone over lunch and ask them to tell you their story, in a generic sense, not the technical sense. That's the way we would say it, though, right? Tell me your story. You can infer a lot about that person's outlook by what they tell you. Not necessarily by the bare events, the story that's embedded in there, but by how they tell it, right? Which events did they choose to tell you? And how did they present those? Are there any events they, they lingered on and spent a long time explaining other ones they passed quickly over if someone the events they choose from their life are a whole bunch of tragedies that's going to tell you something about how they're viewing life currently right if it's a whole bunch of triumphs in life you're going to understand something about how they view their life how they interpret their life so those are just some ways that we can understand this distinction between story and narrative and that's really being able to distinguish those is critical to understanding how narratives can propose, how they can have a thesis, a purpose. So in what ways then, as a narrator, is taking the events of the story and weaving them into a narrative, what are the tools at his disposal for weaving in his thesis, for giving this story a purpose? I've given you a list there in the handout. One would be inclusion and exclusion of events and details. I just drew this one out a little bit in that illustration of a person telling you their story. All narrative is selective. It simply must be so. You can think back, even going back to the Gospel of John, just before he tells the purpose, he says, you know, there's so many things Jesus said and did. We could never write all these things. But the things I have written are for this purpose, right? So that's, Gospel of John is really helpful in helping us see how narrative works. What guides the author's choices about what to include is the message the author intends to convey with the narrative. Why did the author include this, but not that? 
because this contributes to the message the author wants to communicate, and that does not. When we struggle with why an author would include this detail but not that detail, it is because the author isn't communicating the message we would have communicated. In other words, we're saying, this is irrelevant to the message I think should be communicated by this narrative, and that event that was excluded is important to the message I think should be communicated. Let me stop right there. Hopefully, with that illustration, you can begin to see why we have to chasten our questions when it comes to narrative, when reading biblical narrative. Sometimes we're reading the Bible, and we start getting so preoccupied with what happened here. We aren't told this, and we spend all kinds of time trying to think about, go to other passages. What might have happened here in the actual history? Well, if our goal is to understand what this inspired writer is wanting to communicate, then there's a reason he left it out. And trying to fill that gap might actually be working against and causing us to miss his purpose. We'll come back to that, that principle, that implication here in a bit. Some events now, within this inclusion and exclusion, some events are almost obligatory, right? If you think about um, passion narratives in the Gospels. Well, you've got to record Jesus' crucifixion for it really to be a passion narrative, right? So if, he's gonna, if someone's going to write a passion narrative, it has to include certain events. Interestingly, because they are nearly obligatory, they are less helpful for discerning the author's purpose. It's the non-obligatory, the supplementary events and details that are often most illuminating regarding the author's message and purpose. So, first thing that an author and a narrator can use is inclusion or exclusion of events and details. The second one that he can use when taking this story and crafting it into a narrative that has meaning and purpose and a thesis is the order of the events. The ordering of the events in a narrative is most obviously meaningful when the order deviates from chronological order. This often happens. Like when you take a biography, for example, sometimes a biographer might begin from just the very beginning, but there's often move back and forth in his life. Sometimes you might even be later in the person's life, and then you get a flashback to tell a story from their childhood. Well, we, we all know what, what to make of that. We're immediately assuming that somehow the, the biographer thinks that something in his childhood has influenced what he's doing now. And so by changing those things up, it's helping us to see the significance, the meaning of that. We could say it this way. When a narrative places the events in a different order, the order is meaningful. Second way, or third way, sorry, number three. The duration of time or the length of text given to narrating each, each section. So the author's choice to quickly summarize some events but linger at length and carefully develop other ones is purposeful. And it's being driven by the author's purpose, what he's intending to communicate. Number four, the frequency with which a narrator mentions an event. In other words, repetition is significant. Number five, commentary. Commentary is probably one of the most obvious ones. Narrators occasionally provide explicit commentary on an event, a person, or something else. And this helps to convey the meaning of the narrative. For example, Matthew, all, all of the Gospels are regularly seeking to show the significance of what's happening in Jesus' life against the backdrop of the Old Testament. That's regularly happening throughout. Matthew's a bit unique, not totally unique, but a bit unique in the frequency with which he will actually stop and insert sort of this narrative or commentary. 
he says, this was to fulfill, or this happened to fulfill, and then quotes an Old Testament passage. Well, that's really helpful to know why he just took the time to narrate that. And we can infer from the frequency with which Matthew does that, that at least part of his reason for writing is to help us see how Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And then the last one I gave you there, number six, labels. You might think of it as like titles, but labels used for characters, places, etc. Consider, this is totally unbiblical, it's not, not non-biblical, abiblical, um, example here for you. Let me give you first a biblical example. So if someone's introduced and they're introduced, say, as the mother of so-and-so or the wife of so-and-so, it's orienting us as to who are the most important characters, right? And, and who are the secondary characters because of who they're spoken of in relation to. And here's sort of a, um, an example of how labels reveal interpretation. We all know this from even news reporting. Consider, for example, the significance of labels used for Palestinians who attack Israeli soldiers for the sake of protesting Israeli rule. Israel in the U.S. will call them terrorists, right? Whereas those who support Palestine will apply some kind of positive label to them, like freedom fighters or something else like that, patriots maybe. You see how that's totally driving, what's driving that is their outlook on the event, right? How they interpret it. So whenever you have a label on a person or an event or a place, it's often significant. It's revealing the author's purpose. Now, a note of clarification here about how authors weave purpose and thesis into, their, into the story. None of this about a narrative communicating a proposition requires the conclusion that factuality or historicity is irrelevant. Not at all. Consider again my example of the difference between the Gospel of John and a bare chronology of the life of Christ. The fact that John's taken this bare chronology and crafted it into a narrative hasn't falsified or made it lacking in historical accuracy at all. You guys see that? Sometimes I think when we start thinking about the way a narrator can take the facts and give it meaning, a word that comes to mind is spin, right? They're spinning a story. And I think really the, the danger, everyone, when they tell a story, it's infusing it with some kind of interpretation, right? When we use the word spin, it's when we think someone's intentionally twisting that for a particular agenda, right? Contrary to what might be like the, the inherent meaning in those events. I'll come back to that point in a moment. The propositional nature of narrative does not prevent narrative from being historically accurate. And constructing a narrative out of a story does not require distorting the facts. But neither does this mean that any thesis conveyed through a narrative is true just because all the events are factual. So you can tell a narrative, all the actual events of the story, in that technical sense, be true, meaning they actually happened in the way they were said to have happened, but that doesn't necessarily mean the narrative is true. This would be true if history were a meaningless sequence of events. All of us would be free to impose whatever meaning we want on the events. But, in fact, God stands behind history as its author. Therefore, a narrative that aligns with his interpretation of history is the true one. One that imposes a contrary meaning on the events of history is a false one. And in light of this, what could be better? than not merely having a record of events, 
but actually having the author of it all, his commentary on those events, helping us to understand what to make of it. So when you hear that in Scripture, we don't just have bare events, we don't just have story, we actually have narrative where the authors have infused purpose and meaning into that, don't allow the influence of the Enlightenment to tell us, that's not what I want, I just want the facts, ma'am. Allow us to say, that is wonderful because I trust the commentator. I trust the narrator. I trust the one who's ultimately standing behind it and telling us the meaning of these events. And that's what we have in biblical narrative. So let me summarize for us the interpretive task for narrative. So far, I've given you a definition and a description of narrative. But what does this mean for a prescription in reading biblical narrative? First, we must immerse ourselves in the narrative. And I'm putting this first because the tendency when we talk about narrative like this, analyzing it, unpacking it, dissecting it, is to take us away from just immersing ourselves in the narrative. But a narrative isn't just a mere expository piece of writing, right? It's not merely writing out a thesis like you would, like say Paul does in one of his letters. It's a different type of genre, and we need to treat it that way. We need to immerse ourselves in the narrative. So first, we must immerse ourselves in the narrative. Read and reread the narrative, asking what message and purpose is conveyed by the narrative, both the parts and the whole. Things like, why did the author include this rather than something else you might have expected? What might that choice reveal about his message and purpose? Why does he order the events in the way he does? What might that choice reveal about his message and purpose? Why does the author spend so much time on this scene, but summarize other scenes in a few sentences? What might that choice reveal about his message and purpose? And you can see I'm just going through that list of ways that narrators weave purpose into a story. And then, after you've immersed yourself in the narrative, pull up and try to answer the following three questions. Number one, what is the conflict or what is the tension in the narrative? And how is it resolved? For example, in the book of Job, the conflict or tension at the heart of the book centers on why this calamity would befall a righteous man, right? That's what's driving it all. Everyone around is trying to solve this problem. This is the tension or the, um, the conflict. And this is resolved when the Lord appears, but it's not resolved in the way we might expect, explaining why Job is suffering, but by calling the reader to trust the Lord even when we don't understand so notice, critical to interpreting Job isn't just understanding the, the conflict or the tension, but specifically how it's resolved, right? How it's resolved is actually kind of where you find the meaning of the book of Job. And then number two, what are the sections of the narrative and what role does each play in contributing to the book's overall meaning? So essentially here I'm saying, what's the outline of the book? How is it structured? So we would identify the major sections of the narrative and work to explain the function of each in contributing to the book's overall meaning. And then finally, we ask, what is the meaning of the book? And I can break that down to two parts. I think I gave you both parts there. One is, what is the propositional truth conveyed? And then number two, what does the author want the reader to do in light of that truth? That second question is so helpful for us when it comes to application, because often the biblical authors not only are conveying a truth, but they have a, something they want the reader to do after reading that, after understanding that truth. 
Well, that's really helpful. We are left in many cases just with the truth and having to ask ourselves how to apply it. If we're careful readers, often that's already built into the text. There's the truth and its application, at least one of its applications, right? Then we can get to the details of how specifically to work that out. But often that's there. All right, so that's the summary of the interpretive task for narrative. And now finally, and I'm just going to give us one of these things we can learn from the nature and presence of narrative in the Bible. I'm going to give us just one for the sake of time. One thing we can learn from the nature and presence of narrative in the Bible, and that is this. We should embrace the selectivity and interpretation involved in biblical narrative rather than looking at it as something we have to fix by formulating our own reconstruction of the events. So what does it look like? Think with me here. What does it look like to try to fix the selectivity of a biblical narrative? Any thoughts? Well, I have a, I have a question. Um, is it the same in First Kings? Okay. Is it in the story with um, Solomon? Um, so if I think <coughs> somebody, and then they would say, um, oh, yes, there's the story of Solomon. Was that last thing? That sounds like a. Yeah. I think I would just say that authors do have freedom to put things in a different order, not because they're trying to distort the facts about what order they actually happened in, um, but because it's it's going to I don't want to say just suit their narrative because it's not as though they're trying to deceive about what the story actually was. In fact, usually when a narrator takes the events in a story and restructures them, the reader is actually usually able to mentally kind of re-put re it back in its place. Like I mentioned earlier, a biographer does a flashback to the, the subject's childhood. Well, we all know that, right? It wasn't that he's distorting and acting like that actually happened here. He's just putting it there for a purpose. So I think there's probably a lot of details in your mind about a question related to the books of Kings. So maybe we can talk about that later. Um, or maybe we can get to Kings. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so here's what it might look like to embrace the selectivity of, or actually to, to resist that and try to fix the selectivity of biblical narrative. And this isn't to say that this is necessarily always wrong, but just a danger when this becomes the default mode of reading biblical narrative. When we're reading in the Gospels, and there's multiple accounts of the same event, and as soon as we're reading one Gospel, we're remembering that there are other details that weren't included here, 
And we almost act as though, woe woe unto this gospel writer for including so many details. Let me help him out by going to this other one and supplementing it so we can get the fullest picture. Well, that may be fine and good if the author's purpose was to give us all the possible details we could have. And that may be appropriate if our task is to reconstruct what actually happened. But if the purpose is to figure out what is the narrator trying to communicate, then there's a reason he skipped over those things. The reason he didn't take the time to include those, and we're likely going to miss his point if we spend a lot of time trying to supplement them. So what does it look like to embrace the selectivity? One would be to, um, I'll give you a term here, and it'll be helpful, I think, just spatially in your mind, and I'll explain it. To prioritize a vertical reading of biblical texts that have a synoptic parallel. Here's what I mean by that. A synoptic parallel just means there's another text out there that reports it. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are the most common ones for us, right? But also, texts like um, 2 Samuel have parallels in 1 Chronicles, right? We have other passages where there's a synoptic parallel. And a vertical reading just means basically you start at the beginning of Matthew and you read straight through. A horizontal reading is one where you start in Matthew and as soon as you get to a section that has a parallel in Mark or Luke, you start going and reading those and trying to supplement that. Does that make sense? You're always comparing across the Gospels rather than just reading it straight through. So we prioritize just reading a narrative straight through as the author has given it to us. That's one way that we can embrace the selectivity. Another one, when you find yourself wondering about details not included in the narrative, rather than trying to discover or guess how you might fill that perceived gap, Ask how this non-inclusion might help you understand the author's purpose. And just to be clear, while there's a place for sorting out apparent discrepancies between narratives, sometimes we get to be so quick to make that like our primary, primary way of going about it. You know, we read along, oh, the liberals say there's a discrepancy here, so let me now spend the next 20 hours of my time in Bible study trying to flesh this out and explain why it's harmonized and why there's not actually... Um, a discrepancy. Again, that's not necessarily wrong, but sometimes we jump to that because we don't really know how to actually read narrative and don't have anything else to do. We're, we aren't aware of what else we should be doing. Okay, so continuing with embracing the selectivity and interpretation involved in narrative, the observation that bare events, the mere story, is not self-interpreting and that the act of narration provides the interpretation might suggest there's no meaning to history. I sort of alluded to this earlier that it's up to us to impose on it whatever meaning we would like to. And this is indeed a common way of thinking. In many ways, we could say this is kind of what drives, um, what drives, you know, to use a very popular level term, postmodernism, that there is no meta-narrative to the world. No one can, impl- can impose a meaning on the world or on life or on anyone's personal life. They have the freedom to do that themselves. But it simply isn't true that events don't have, the history doesn't have meaning, because a sovereign and purposeful God stands behind all of history. Now, that doesn't mean, though, this is important, that doesn't mean that events themselves are self-interpreting, as though the, the winner is always right. You guys see that? Sometimes we can even read history and say, oh, you know, um, that side was obviously right in God's eyes because they, they're the ones who won after all. Well, that just doesn't work. We, we need some kind of outside commentary to help us understand what's right and what's wrong. But God hasn't left us with just events, nor has he merely revealed to us a record of events. Rather, he's provided us with biblical narrative, 
And biblical narrative is both the record of the events and the interpretation of those events overlaid on the events themselves. And because that interpretation is God's own interpretation, wow, what what more could we possibly hope to have? In some ways, this this is a bit of a a shock value statement, okay? So keep that in view. That's the context for this. In some ways, it's true to say it's better to read a biblical narrative than to have experienced the actual events. It's better to read a biblical narrative than to have experienced the actual events. Here's an example. We follow along in the narrative, the disciples of Jesus, and they are so confused, right? In some ways, though, we're almost ahead of them as readers because the narrator's already helping us make sense of these things. Let me give you another example. Many of you are familiar with the the scene at the end of the Gospel of Luke, the road to Emmaus. You guys remember this? And on the road to Emmaus, Jesus, without being known by the disciples, these disciples, he shows up, walks alongside them, begins this casual conversation with them, notes that they're kind of down, asks what's been happening, And he goes on, basically, and gives them, reinterprets for them all the events of the Passion through the lens of the Old Testament, right? He helps them to understand the Old Testament now and how that all pointed to Jesus, and not just to Jesus, but also to his his death and resurrection. And a lot of people want to come through and say, wow, wouldn't it be great if we had a recording of that? If we knew what he actually said? I think that question is overlooking the fact that that's exactly what Luke has given us. He's gone back through and narrated the events of Jesus' life through the lens of the Old Testament. You guys see that? And so here all along, the disciples had to wait till the very end after the resurrection to get that, and we have it from the very beginning. So again, just an encouragement to embrace the interpretation that's overlaid on the events in biblical narrative. All right, I'll stop there. So we can jump into Joshua. Any questions about that? I don't want to take too much time for questions. We probably have a lot. But if you have any pressing questions, feel free to ask now. All right. Joshua. And just so we aren't surprised as we start moving through, um, I knew from the very beginning I wasn't going to get through Joshua in one whole time. So uh, we will, this is part of the plan, to let, let this spill over into Next time we're together, it's going to be two weeks from now because we have family gathering next week. Two weeks from tonight, uh, we'll pick up and finish Joshua and then take on Judges then as well. All right. Let's start out with just a high-level brief summary of Joshua. Although there are numerous elements of the promise to Abraham, we talked about last week that land and descendants are among the primary ones. And... The Pentateuch records that the descendants piece was fulfilled in considerable measure during the period of the Exodus, right? Not during the period, during the period of slavery in Egypt. They multiplied tremendously, Exodus 1 says. And then um, Exodus chapter 2 through the end of Deuteronomy are all kind of forward-looking, anticipating the beginning of the fulfillment of the land promise. So those two promises in Abraham, the, the Pentateuch's kind of showing unfolding, And so all this time, from Exodus 2 through the end of Deuteronomy, the reader's just looking forward to 
them entering the land, beginning to possess the land. And it's been sort of heightened in anticipation by even like the whole Kadesh Barnea episode, where they're right on the edge of the land. They end up being ready to go in, but because of unbelief, they aren't able to go in. Then we have the whole book of Numbers, the rest of Numbers, while they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. So the point is, a lot of the narrative, all of the narrative we could be saying, is oriented up to this point toward going into the land. And the book of Joshua records Israel crossing the Jordan into the promised land, conquering much of it, dividing it among the tribes, and ends with Joshua reminding the people that much work remains to be done, and that obedience to the Lord is the means to further realization of the promises. Meaning, if you're going to possess more of the land, getting toward the full amount the Lord promised, obedience is going to be the primary thing needed. That trusting and obeying the Lord, that theme, that it would be essential to realizing, to inheriting God's promises, is really not surprising at all when we keep in context all we learned last week. Think back to what we learned last week about kind of that high-level summary of the Pentateuch and how that plays into this theme of trusting and obeying the Lord being essential to God's purpose. Remember that the promises to Abraham are the Lord's plan to restore and complete what he began at creation. The promises to Abraham are the Lord's plan to restore and complete what he began at creation. And this entrance to the land promised to Abraham is a sort of return to the garden where God will dwell among them, bless them, and from which the whole earth will be blessed. However, as in the garden, trusting obedience is a non-negotiable. God's creation purpose depends on a harmony between God and his people. As his vice regents, they have to be in harmony there. They simply can't do that without submitting to him and trusting him and obeying him. Therefore, in light of this storyline, it's not surprising at all that obedience to God would be essential. Additionally, not only does the whole context of the storyline indicate that obedience is absolutely essential, but also we said the very purpose of the Mosaic Covenant is to kind of come in behind the Abrahamic Covenant and we could say administrate its fulfillment. It says specifically that God, God's clear in the Abrahamic promise, particularly uh, Genesis 15, that he will make sure it is fulfilled. There's no doubt about that. Regardless of what the people do, he will fulfill that promise. But it's not necessarily fulfilled to just anyone. It's fulfilled to the generation that is faithful. And the Mosaic Covenant comes along and says, if you want to inherit these, these are the things you must do. These are the kind of the conditions on you being the one to inherit the, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. So as well there, we see that if they're going to possess these promises, trusting the Lord and obeying him is absolutely essential. It's a non-negotiable. All right, so with that in mind, let's first look at the situation uh, in which the book was written. We don't have a whole lot here um, to go on. The book does not indicate explicitly when it was written or by whom. We don't necessarily know. Um, I guess I mentioned that as well there. Regarding the author, the book gives us little to nothing from which to infer who might have written it. Now, regarding the date, there's a little bit more, and so I gave you just kind of a general explanation and a detailed explanation. I'm not going to go into the detailed explanation for now, but if you're interested, there it is for you to read. In general, though, we can get a range of when it was likely written. It was written during the period of the judges 
which would be like 1350 to 1050, or possibly as late as the reign of Saul, which ended right around 1011 BC. Now, the purpose. What was the purpose in writing the book? So I'm going to give this to you up front, and as we work through the book, we'll see this playing itself out. Absolutely foundational to the book of Joshua is, as I mentioned earlier, that relationship between the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. The Lord made promises to Israel, and yet the the reception, the realization of those promises depends upon their faithfulness to the covenant, specifically to the Mosaic covenant. The Lord made promises in the Abrahamic covenant that he will certainly fulfill at some point in time, and the Mosaic covenant indicates what Israel must do to inherit those promises. So with this principle in mind, the book of Joshua teaches, number one, that the Lord can be trusted to fulfill his promises. First purpose, to teach that the Lord can be trusted to fulfill his promises. And secondly, that the fulfillment of those promises depends on Israel's faithfulness to the Lord. And both of these are conveyed to the reader in both the historical account and in Joshua's charges to Israel at the end of the book. I mean, he's using everything there to convey this point. And then building on this teaching, the book calls its readers to trust the Lord and be faithful to him. So you can see how there's a purpose, something he wants them to do in light of the kind of the proposition he has conveyed for them to believe. And now moving on to the structure. What's the structure of the book? I gave you four parts here. I think I have an outline here. There we go. So you've got it there, but you can also see it here as you keep flipping through and get past this, uh, this structure in your notes. Number one, chapters one through five, preparations to conquer the land. Chapter six through 12, conquering the land. Chapters 13 through 21, division of the land. And chapters 22 through 24, a charge to serve the Lord. All right, with that outline in view and with the purpose in view, let's jump in and see how each part contributes to that purpose, how the author develops the narrative to to accomplish his purpose. So in chapters 1 through 5, the Lord speaking to Joshua, charging him with leading Israel into the land and taking possession of it, and then the preparations are made and they cross the Jordan. And that's basically where chapter 5 leaves us at the end. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Joshua, Joshua chapter 1. I want to take just a, we'll obviously skim over some portions very, very quickly, and then other portions take a moment to look at the text. So this is one point where I just want you to see how the charge from the Lord to Joshua, how it's laid out here. So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, we find the Lord's charge to Joshua. In verses 3 through 5, the Lord promises that he will give the land to Israel. And then in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1, the Lord gives instructions to Joshua, particularly explaining to Joshua his responsibility in all of this. And these instructions might surprise us. If you're going in to conquer a land, to conquer enemies, you would think that the instructions might include military instructions, right? Well, that's not what we have here. What are the instructions? Look here at verses 6 through 9. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. 
Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it, that law, to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So basically there are two parts. Be strong and courageous and meditate on the law of God and be deliberate to obey it and not to deviate from it. But really, these aren't two separate things. The command to be strong and courageous there in verse 7, where it opens, at least in the NASB, only be strong and very courageous is oriented toward knowing and obeying the word of God. Because what follows it actually aren't separate imperatives. They're like purposes. So it basically says, be strong and very courageous to be careful to do. So all of the strength and the courage is oriented toward doing the word of God. We might imagine in this type of a context that strong and courageous looks like something you might see on Braveheart. But here, being strong and courageous looks like resolve to obey the Lord without question, without doubt, just sticking to that and following through with that. So the thing to notice here is that the most important thing for success in their coming endeavor is obedience. And he says very clearly um, at the end of verse 8, basically, if you do this, you will have success. Not all these military commands, not if you, if you stage this ambush just right and pull it off at the right time, but if you will obey Know my word, know what I've commanded, and keep it, then you will have success. Super important to understanding the purpose of the book of Joshua. And this is important. It's an important theme that we're going to see again and again. The Lord will fight Israel's battles. That's no problem for him. What they must do is trust and obey him. Let's take, this is, we're going to take a few minutes here for a text, but that's going to set up really all of the former prophets. So even though it seems like we're going back to Deuteronomy, it's going to be critical. Go with me to Deuteronomy 17. And Deuteronomy 17 contains instructions for Israel's king. At some point in the future, when Moses is writing this, there is no king. But it's looking forward to a time when they will have a king, and it's giving instructions. Now, in the book of Joshua, we don't find a king. But we do still find a lot of these same principles coming through, and then we'll really see this the, the instructions for a king here in Deuteronomy 17, how relevant they are when we get to the books of Samuel and Kings. But I'm going to take some, a moment here on the front end just to kind of unpack this. So beginning in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17 is where we find these instructions for a king. And it, we'll see here that he's specifically told not to focus on equipping himself to fight in his own strength, but to put his focus to knowing and obeying the Lord. So verses 16 and 17, let me just read up to that from verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it, and you live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, here's the part about what he shall not do. He shall not multiply horses for himself. So that one seems to clearly be oriented toward increasing military strength, right? Basically, the idea would be like having a, an amassed army. And the text goes on. 
nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. So that's still related to the horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return there again. Verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. So now that one can be multiple reasons, but it seems like in the ancient Near East, multiplying wives was often because you've got to make all these alliances with all kinds of other kings. Because if their wife, if their daughter, say a king's daughter is, is married to this guy, then there's a vested interest in not going to war with him and making sure that his kingdom flourishes. So by creating all these marital alliances, uh, it would ensure, it would be like a, make, a way of making treaties. And so basically you are not to depend upon human means of ensuring national security. And then finally, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So those are things he should not do. But then in verses 18 through 20, we have what he should do. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So I take the time to go there because these instructions for a king are going to be sort of the interpretive grid uh, that's assumed as we continue through the former prophets. But in particular, with regard to Joshua, where we don't yet have any kings, I draw them out because they introduce us to the main point of the book, namely that the Lord is committed to giving his people what he promised to them, but they must obey. So when we see these commands to Joshua about, you know, what, what should be the one thing Joshua does? If he's going to go and possess the land, he needs to obey the law, right? He needs to know it and obey it. That sounds a lot like what was instructed for Israel's kings, right? And in some sense, Joshua's functioning a bit like a king here in the book of Joshua. So we can see why that commission to Joshua, that charge, is totally kind of expected and in place, appropriate in light of Deuteronomy 17. All right, so chapter 1 of Joshua, we get the charge to him to lead the people into the land and give them the land, cause them to dwell in it and possess it. Chapter 2, we come here to the story of Rahab and the spies, the two spies that are sent in. This is a familiar story. They're going into Jericho, the first city they're going to come to, and their purpose is just to gain intel before the army comes behind him. And here are some of the important things to note about this scene in the flow of the book. One, confidence of Israel's success is conveyed. Confidence of Israel's success is conveyed. And notice in particular, the confidence of success is conveyed by their enemy. This is interesting because as soon as you see them again getting ready to enter the land and choosing spies to send in, your mind should go back to Kadesh Barnea, where spies were chosen and sent in. Those spies come back with a bad report. There's no way we can conquer them. But what's the report that Rahab gives? I am sure the Lord has given you this city because we heard about all that happened in Egypt. Well, didn't the spies back in Kadesh Barnea have that same info? God's faithfulness in Egypt? But they chose not to believe it. Rahab, we find here, actually believing that the Lord who did that is going to destroy us too. So confidence is conveyed that the Lord can keep his promises. And particularly, the, notice that the basis for this confidence is God's work on Israel's behalf in the past. And this was the very thing Israel was supposed to be noticing to give them confidence. 
And we see that come through at the conclusion of the scene. Notice verse 24 of chapter 2. They said to Joshua, that's the two spies, coming back from having gathered this intel to report back. This is a critical point in light of Kadesh Barnea. What are they going to say? Are they going to discourage Israel's heart from believing the Lord and obeying? Or are they going to encourage them? What do they say? Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. So we see faith being conveyed there. The scene communicates that Israel is trusting the Lord. And then additionally, we see that, and we'll come back to this next week or two weeks from now, but not everyone is, is simply condemned in the promised land because of race or because of ethnicity, nor is the inheritance of the promises to Abraham limited or, or decided purely on the basis of ethnicity as though everyone who's born as a descendant, a physical descendant of Abraham, inherits the promises and no one else gets it. No, trust in the Lord is already seen to be there. Rahab is able to participate in the promises, but even um, those who are descendants of Abraham and aren't trusting him will not participate. All right, next, next section there, chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 1. This is the crossing of the Jordan. In the miraculous way that the Lord enables them to cross on dry ground is another reminder that the Lord has no problem fulfilling his promises. Going in and conquering all the nations in the promised land isn't going to be an issue at all. The Lord can take care of that. And it encourages them to trust and obey him. And this purpose is made explicit in chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. Um, For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but basically there we see the Lord's previous demonstrations of commitment to fulfill his promises and that they're intended to compel him to trust them, to trust him for his future work. In other words, Joshua says, look back to what the Lord's done for you in the past and know that he'll fulfill his promises in the future, which is a theme that Joshua not only is conveying to his hearers there, but the writer, the author of Joshua, is kind of passing on along to his readers, and even us, the very same way. Look at what the Lord has done in the past to keep his promises, and know that you can trust him to keep the promises that, whose fulfillment is yet future for us. All right, good. Next, move on to chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. And here we find um, what I call the start of a new chapter. In verses 2 through 9, all the men are circumcised. What we learn is that when that first generation that was unbelieving had died in the wilderness and the next generation came up, they were never circumcised. Why is that significant to going in and possessing the land? Because circumcision is the sign of the covenant, according to Genesis 17. And one of the aspects of that Abrahamic covenant was land, right? So here they are getting ready to go in and possess land And there's no indication they have a right to the land, right? Because they aren't even possessing the sign of the covenant. So it's absolutely critical that they first be kind of following through in obedience here. And Joshua is clear to do that. And then in verse 10, Israel celebrates the Passover, which the function of the Passover was always to remind Israel of the Lord's mighty works in the Exodus. It's an appropriate time for them to be remembering this now. Um, I'm going to skip over verses 11 and 12. um, And then... The last four verses, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 5, 
we find assurance of the Lord's help. And this part of the book concludes with this figure, the captain of the host of the Lord, who appears to speak to Joshua. And as with so much in this section, the scene communicates that the Lord will fight for Israel. However, it's also helpful to note how this figure answers or doesn't answer Joshua's question. Look at verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And what does he say? No. (laughs) Rather, I indeed came now as captain and host of the Lord. Well, that's an interesting response. It doesn't really seem to answer the question, does it? And it seems the point is that the Lord can't simply be assumed to be on Israel's side. That will depend on Israel's obedience. If Israel is obedient, yes, the Lord will be fighting for Israel, giving Israel the land. But if Israel is disobedient, the Lord will oppose Israel and even expel them from the land. So we might say this scene provides a qualified assurance of the Lord's help. So let's summarize this first section, chapters 1 through 5. First, we saw in verses 1 through 9 the way the section opened with the Lord's charge to Joshua and how that assured him that the Lord will give them the land and the critical role of obedience to that. Then chapter 2 conveyed confidence in the Lord that should flow from observing his past acts, and it also shows that even non-Israelites can join Israel and inherit the promises to Abraham. Then in 3, 1 through 5, 1, We saw the Lord's miraculous assistance to Israel in crossing the Jordan, which we are told is intended to call the readers to trust the Lord. And then in chapter 5, verses 2 through 12, Israel's participation in the covenant through circumcision and Passover, preparing her to inherit the promises. And then finally, chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, indicates the Lord would fight for Israel as long as she is obedient. Thus, the opening section lays the foundation for and begins to accomplish the book's aim of calling its readers to trust the Lord and to be faithful to him so that he may inherit the fullness of the promises. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. Um, Don't worry, other parts will go more quickly. Once we get past chapter 12, there's a lot of details about all of the boundaries of each of the tribe's land inheritance. I promise you, we won't spend a long time there. So we'll be able to move more quickly through this. It was helpful to get back in that little treatment of how to read narrative. Um, So we'll finish this up in two weeks and then jump into Judges. Uh, Before we conclude, any other questions? Clay? This may be something you'll talk about later. Do you see any, like, new creation motifs in in the narrative? There's one, there's a couple I can think of. I'm not certain about how, how clearly they were intended. Yeah, particularly in the Jericho scene, there's a possibility of some. So like if they're walking around um, the city seven times, seven might cause you to remember the seven days of creation and think of them entering the land. It's supposed to be the new garden. Um, we're specifically going to see basically, well, I'm not going to draw it out actually because of time, but Achan, um, his sin with taking, uh, the author is very clear to use the very same language of what Achan does as of what Eve did. He looked He saw that the gold was good, he desired it, and he took it. Those are all the verbs that Eve uses, or that are used of Eve. And so it's almost like just as they're entering into the land now, there's sort of this new fall happening in the land. Is that kind of what you were thinking along those lines? Yeah, I was just curious about uh, the allusion to the 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Some of that language about the, even even in the Exodus drawing off of new creation imagery. Ah, like, uh, okay. Yeah, so what Clay's referring to there is remember when the Lord first creates the earth, it's covered, it's a watery mass. And then as a part of creation, he, he exposes dry ground, right? So I think that's one piece, right? That might be suggesting that there's new creation language coming through here. Yeah. Correct. Yep. And the difficulty with all these things is that it has to be fettered, it has to be tied to the author's intention. We aren't just about trying to find any kind of connections or possible allusions. The question is, did the author intend that? Because otherwise it's not inspired. It's not part of God's word. And so that's the difficulty always with these types of things. We're here 2,000 years later, 3,000 years later in the case of Joshua, trying to make sense of what exactly did he intend. But the good news is the solution is just to immerse ourselves in the biblical text. The better we know it, the more we're going to pick up on those things. Um, It doesn't require any kind of particular training. It just means knowing your Bible well. Something that's available to all of us. Yes? The episode in chapter 5 where he meets this commander of the army of the Lord, is that, um, what's your take on how much the reader is supposed to be wondering about the identity of that, that person? Yeah, I don't know. I, there's, as with all angel of the Lord appearances, there's, there's simultaneously the suggestion that the person, it's a person, it's a personal being other than the Lord, who's a messenger on behalf of the Lord. And yet there's also these suggestions that it may be the Lord, but based often by the way the person responds to the angel of the Lord or the messenger here. Um, so it's just always hard to tell whether that's appropriate response to the messenger and, and kind of in deference to the person themselves or not. And balancing those is difficult. So I don't know that that's critical to this passage. Yeah, I took kind of the message there being that the Lord will fight for them, regardless of whether this is an appearance of the Lord himself or whether this is a messenger from the Lord. So the detail of him bowing down and worshiping this messenger is, is not, uh, you, you would say it's not central to the point? I mean, that's there, and you've got to wrestle what you do with that. So, yeah. But, I, no, I think the main point, though, is the Lord's going to fight for them, not necessarily that the Lord appeared to them. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Thank you all for your attention. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and I thank you, even as, as I've talked to people over the past week and just heard of their enthusiasm just to know your word better, um, and how even people are reading on ahead through the former prophets, trying to understand them. Um, when you work in people's lives, uh, it's incredible how we turn from just simply living to satisfy whatever might be the desire of the moment to seeking to know you. And, and realizing, believing that you have revealed yourself in a book, and therefore we must know that if we're to know you. And so I just thank you for these people here. As I look out, this, this is a group of people, your people, whom you have called out from the world, whom you've gathered together, who seek to be faithful in following Christ and just simply want to know your word. And so I pray, Lord, that as we even thank you for this time and look forward to the coming weeks, uh, that you would um, just bless all of our efforts, my efforts to to teach these books and these people's efforts to attend to them, to listen, um, and to better understand your word. Bless us with making the most of the time that we might gain greater clarity into what you've revealed and know you better. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.